Today our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend, for justice will amend America. I am Jeff Nyquist. Welcome to my show, Outside the Box. We are thinking outside the box because on this show I want to challenge people about social decay. I want to talk about war, power politics, national survival, American national survival. And I want to talk about the economy, which is what our subject is going to be tonight. And my guest, my special guest on tonight's show is Michael J. Pansner, a 25-year veteran of the global stock, bond, and currency markets. He's a brilliant guy, and he's he's written a brilliant book, Financial Armageddon, Protecting Your Future from Foreign Pending Catastrophes, and he's also the author of The New Laws of the Stock Market Jungle, an Insider's Guide to Successful Investing in a Changing World. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. In the Wall Street Journal, there was something about the German market had fallen 20%, the French 22%, the Indian 38%, and the Chinese Shanghai market almost 50%. The uh, U.S. stock markets entered into bear territory. And this is something you've been talking about for like a year already now since your book came out. I think it's a combination of factors. Suddenly the equity traders, if you like, are are getting the big picture, understanding that this isn't you know, sort of a normal cyclical downturn that we've been seeing in the economy. It isn't a, just a severe hiccup that can be resolved by the Federal Reserve. Uh, I think they're suddenly getting the message here that uh, that we've got structural problems. Yeah, the last time you were on the show was just before Bear Stearns collapsed, or maybe it was just after, and we, we talked about that. Uh, what What is going to happen next? How much further are the markets going to uh, fall? How do you envision this unfolding? Has it been going faster than you thought, or is it about the same pace that you thought? Well, in some respects, it's a little bit quicker, but frankly, I, I don't think we've seen the kinds of events that are really going to scare people. Clearly, we had um, Bear Stearns on the ropes, but I think we'll see uh, many more failures, both in terms of commercial banks and investment banks. We'll see a lot more damage done to the economy. We'll see uh, Washington coming around to the realization uh, that the world that they keep trying to sell as a good one is actually not so good. And I think all of that is yet to come. So in in some respects, yes, the credit markets have, have really shriveled up uh, fairly rapidly. But in a, in a broader sense, um, there's, there's plenty ahead. Hmm. I was just looking at the unemployment stats for California. California is higher than the national uh, average and more than a, a percentage point above. We're like 6.8 percent, and it's gone up a percent and a half. But a lot of that, according to the California numbers, is coming from the building trade, people that are associated with this real estate uh, bubble that's bursting here in California. And I wonder, since this is affecting California and its rate is higher, if the next thing that's going to happen is real estate's going to start to come down more. Well, that was always the argument even for the banking system, is that there, it was really a, a two-phase kind of process. The first was all of these structural issues. There were plenty of excesses. People were lending money um, against bad collateral, but lending money to people who couldn't pay it back and creating all of this sort of uh, fictitious 
capital and fictitious financial instruments in a sense that it was a bit like a Ponzi scheme. So you had this this one element, the structural element, was what we've seen really fall apart over the past year or so. But none of that really took into account the sort of broader economic downturn. The fact is that defaults rise when the economy turns down. You have more unemployment, so people go bankrupt more often. All of the traditional factors associated with a, uh, a weakening economy hadn't even begun yet, and we've already had the uh, the banking system in a state of turmoil. So I, I think it's certainly going to be a one-two punch. Um, the implications for me are slightly different than what others uh, believe, mm-hmm. but um, is is a really a process of deflationary forces because people have to sell things for okay. cash. H- hold that thought. We got a break. I'm Jeff Nyquist, out of the box, and I'm with Michael Pansner. We'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. I'm Jeff Nyquist, thinking with you outside the box, and I have a very special guest, Michael Pansner. He's author of Financial Armageddon. He's a 25-year veteran of the global stock, bond, and currency markets who's worked in New York and London for such leading companies as Dresdner Bank and J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, as I said, he's written Financial Armageddon, Protecting Your Future from Foreign Pending Catastrophes. And, uh, Michael, you were just, uh, you were just working on a book that's going to be coming out soon, a second book. The New Laws of the Stock Market Jungle, an Insider's Guide to Successful Investing in a Changing World. Well, I'm wrapping it up. Actually, unfortunately, the publishing industry is a little bit still in the in the dark ages. Uh, you would think with the digital technology, it'd be quicker, but it's really scheduled to come out um, after the new year um, um, in in February. Um, I'm just putting the finishing touches on the draft, and uh, it really incorporates to some extent some of the broader issues that we've seen um, here. This this sort of whole economic morass. I think it ties in very closely with. Uh, America as a country. I think we're looking at the uh, the sort of waning days of the American empire, and that's one theme of my next book. You know, I was just reading Ludwig von Mises. Uh, he wrote a book uh, in the 1940s during World War II called Omnipotent Government. And he had a line in there. He had a line that just struck me. He said that it isn't the it isn't a particular institution or section of society that's failing. It's society itself has entered into a process of degeneration. Um, and, you know, I look around and I see the permissiveness in the society, the growing laxness, the, the uh, tendency to spend money irresponsibly. Uh, it, it seems to me that, that what's happening with the economy is related to deeper social trends that may not be entirely positive. I agree. I think it's a it's a it's a precursor to a, a much bigger and broader convulsion, both socially, economically, geopolitically. Um, I certainly think that's the case, and clearly, it, it it there are cyclical forces involved. One has to always avoid looking at things with a very very limited um, time window because you know you get ebb and flow, and and I'm sure each generation through the centuries has thought that their own generation was dramatically different than the one that preceded it. So bearing that in mind, I still believe we're at a crossroads and mm. we're looking at a uh, a fairly dramatic 
transition, one that I believe personally, uh, and I think you do as well, will be much darker, much more violent, and much more um, unsettling than what people have been used to. Well, of course, people don't realize when you have big changes and people feel threatened, there is this human tendency to turn to violence which is, you know, everything from the Algerian crisis, we saw both Arab and uh, Europeans do uh, terrible atrocities to each other. We've seen in the Middle East how this violence has been unleashed. And, of course, in America itself, we forget that there's some violence in America's past, uh, the Civil War and, and so on. But we did make it through the Great Depression without a Civil War violence or a military coup. And I... You know, I'm, I'm just looking at this, um, and my feeling is that this, what we're headed into is really bad, and it's bad because we've developed all the wrong attitudes for coping with economic adversity in this country. Well, I think there's something to that, and although just stepping back a little bit, even though the Depression, uh, per se wasn't traumatic directly for the US you know uh, ultimately there was some some fallout uh, clearly but uh it that violence did turn up elsewhere you know in Germany yes. you know, Germany was a, was certainly a, a a response to economic conditions so uh, i think maybe what you're driving at here is that in the US in particular you might just get the combination of the sort of uh, breakdown economically along with the sort of breakdown that leads to greater violence and greater social discord and i i personally agree with that uh with that outlook if that's what you're suggesting well america was surprisingly united in its values and its ideas um in the 1930s and all of a sudden we get this thing um now where the country's very ideologically divided. Um, you have, for the first time, uh, a man running for president. He's one of the furthest to the left senators. He's very popular. If the election were held today, according to the Rasmussen and Gallup and Times magazine polls, he would win the election today. And of course, this is a, an amazing shift in the electorate. Perhaps the guy's a phenomenon, but it, it would mean a complete changing of the economic system through a period of legislated changes, which, if I understand economics correctly, if the United States moves closer to socialism, the standard of living in this country is going to drop considerably. Well, I, I think it's inevitable, frankly, that there is a shift in that direction. You can only already see the response for example, to the fallout that's been taking place in the in the banking and financial sector, uh, all of a sudden you've gone from the sort of post-Reagan era call for less and less government laissez-faire regulation uh, and really to let the free markets do their thing to a shift that even the the, the participants are, are begging the government to step in and save them and re-regulate them and, and make the system healthier. So I, I think the broader social shift is already established in that direction, led by what's been going on in, in, in the world of finance. Um, but yeah, clearly those are um, have negative consequences consequences um, for society as a whole, but I, I think the, the, the other issue is that it's not going to be the sort of easy transition. In fact, I think it will create great uh, tension and, and within society, and not, maybe not necessarily a civil, of the Civil War caliber, but certainly um, pitting one side against the other. Yeah, and we have we have racial divides. We've had riots, race riots in this country. We had Los Angeles over the Rodney King affair. Los Angeles was burning. There was a lot of violence. The National Guard had to be called in. 
And so we have a, a potentially volatile situation. We've got um, ethnic groups in the country, perhaps like the Hispanics or the illegal aliens or some of the Asians, that don't feel that they belong in, to the country or they feel that they're not accepted by the rest of the country as, as full citizens, which the illegal aliens aren't. Um, is it is it possible the country could break apart? I see, and, and it's another theme of my book, I see all kinds of pressures, divisive uh, pressures, pulling people apart. Um, whether you're talking about um, economic issues, whether you're talking about um, cultural issues, I think there will be a tremendous upsurge in anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-foreign sentiment, xenophobia, if you mm-hmm. want to sort of put that in more broad terms. Um, I think there will be a sense of a... Uh, heightened generational um, difficulties between old and young because of economic circumstances, uh, between the north and south, between suburbia and the uh, cities. All of these factors are coming together uh, in part because of the issues like economics, in part because of resource constraints, which this whole issue of the oil industry and food and water, all of these sort of vital uh, essential ingredients to, to keeping uh, you know, civilized society going are all coming under stress. And, and I think those stresses really reveal themselves in, in, in schisms and in people sort of fighting with one another. And, uh, and so, I, yes, I agree with your, with your premise. Yeah, it it is kind of disturbing, and of course, some of the political extremism that we've seen both on the right and the left, it wasn't so many years ago that Timothy McVeigh, a right-wing extremist, blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. And of course, the United States has been spared that kind of bombing and, and terrorism. But as a columnist, I get an awful lot of very scary, in fact, I even get some death threats, uh, scary letters from, from right-wing people who are very angry at the government. Well, I think um, anger, if you if it was a tradable commodity, was probably one of the few bull markets I see in the years ahead. Um, <laughs> that that perhaps in weapons, uh, shotguns, um, I, I think it's going to be the sort of environment that people are going to be more angry, more upset, more unnerved by what's going on around them, more frustrated, and all of those things, you know, create a, a, a sort of us versus them mentality. They create a sense of wanting to be separate. Um, they create feelings of uh, wanting to lash out. Um, so in a sense, we've seen the best of all worlds, um, this whole period of globalization, which I think is coming to an end, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen um, this whole movement towards uh, inclusionism. Um, I think you probably are aware that uh, they recently had a vote in Europe which uh, was to, to essentially decide uh, in Ireland uh, among the 27 countries in the European Union whether they would go ahead with a sort of constitutional type structure. Um, that was rejected uh, in the one and only referendum in Europe. I think personally that's an early warning sign that the uh, that this sort of unity in Europe that everyone sort of takes for granted uh, may be at risk. Yeah, it it may have been too utopian to expect all those different nations to bind together into one. And perhaps that's where we have with our uh, runaway economic optimism, we have uh, sort of banked on a continued prosperity, a continuation of the way things have been the last four decades, four or five decades. And really, we're seeing with these oil prices in the United States something that we haven't seen in this country before, a real 
uh, constriction on the on the living standard for people who are further down on the pay scale. I mean, gasoline in my part of the country, Northern California, is reaching close to five dollars a gallon, which is extremely uh, you know expensive. It it it's just striking. Well, I, I think. And some very, very astute columnist, Martin Wolf of the Financial Times is one, has, has, has clarified the relationship between the growth that we've seen in the world economy. Um, uh, there's been obviously several contributing factors, but, but certainly this has been a primary one is, uh, the, the sort of cheapness and availability of energy. And, and, and frankly, the world has, not only benefited, for example, from the U.S.'s role as a sort of policeman, global policeman of last resort, but it's had a tremendous benefit from this uh, access to energy, which has allowed for uh, staggering gains in productivity. Once you take that away, it, it does it undermines the whole economic uh, structure, in my opinion, at least, and and it, it adds to other other factors. You know, we've got uh, all sorts of issues related to food and water, but. Energy has been the sort of um, lubricant, wheeling, uh, sort of the lubricant, oiling the, the the wheels of civilized society and commerce, in my opinion. And we've become quite addicted to the oil. Uh, are we reaching peak oil? I, I'm trying to read these numbers, and it seems like uh, oil fields are in decline, or is it just that the state-owned oil companies aren't able to keep up? Well, you know, there's... Personally, I buy the argument of peak oil. I think there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that the large finds have followed or have traced um, the sort of path envisaged by um, Hubbard, who, who originally came up with the theory. Um, well, hold, hold that thought. We have a break. Um, I'm with Michael Panzner. I'm Jeff Nyquist. Out of the box. We'll be back after these messages. Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Dyquist. All right, we're back with Michael Panzner. I'm Jeff Nyquist, Out of the Box. We're thinking out of the box. I'm going to be with my guest, Michael Panzner, in just a second, but I want to tell the listeners about my website. It's jrnyquist.com. That's J-R-N-Y-Q-U-I-S-T dot com. There you can see uh, samples of videos that we're producing. You can see articles that I write. I read a regular column for financialsense.com, and you can link to that on my website. And there's there's hundreds and hundreds of articles filled with information, and a lot of it is written by people from all over the world. So remember, jrnyquist.com. All right, Michael, we were talking about how you think it's reasonable to think there's peak oil, and I think if these countries could, just by pumping an extra half million or million barrels out of the ground a day, given the price of oil, I mean, it would be a tremendous windfall. If they could do it, they'd be doing it, wouldn't they? Well, I think it's not so straightforward an answer. For example, certain parts uh, of the world that have uh, extra production available produce grades of crude oil that aren't necessarily the most attractive. I think Saudi oil tends to be heavier, not quite uh, along the lines of the sort of light, sweet variety that's preferred uh, and that many refineries are geared up for. Mm -hmm. So that's one issue. The other issue is, is that I do believe there is probably a speculative element. All bull markets have it. 
that may be playing a role right now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very, very common in commodity bull markets that are, you know, motivated by strong fundamentals, but also draw in all sorts of speculative interests. But don't discount, and I think this certainly applies to things like food, for example, don't discount the fact that um, higher prices, um, you know, have a, essentially their own feedback mechanisms. I mean, we've already seen the number of miles driven in this country has fallen uh, for the first time. I, I don't remember the time span. I think it was like a decade or something. But because people are reacting and responding to higher prices, and in arguably, I think that and slowing world growth could temper demand in the short run could actually see prices come down, although I think the structural increase in prices remains and prices are headed higher in the long run. So there are some countervailing winds in this whole sort of unlimited bullish outlook for for energy and, and other prices. I mean, governments may step in and just essentially cap prices, however bad economic policy that might be, mm-hmm. um, it will have a short-run effect that can't you know, be ignored. So just bear in mind that there are elements that can sort of throw a monkey wrench into all of this, but I do believe that structurally speaking, supply or at least available supply or at least immediately available supply is essentially not kept pace with demand. And of course, the country that's going to be affected by that severely besides the United States, of course, is China. Right. We've seen the effect on the Chinese markets. Is China going to face the worst consequences given that there are 1.4 billion people now and they're already quite poor? Well, certainly they've, their per capita incomes have increased in China as they have in many fast-growing developing countries around the world. Um, but in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of poison chalice in a sense because now that people have gotten used to a higher standard of living or got, have gotten used to having some things they didn't, you know, have before, uh, in a sense, once you take them away, it creates a greater possibility of social instability. And I think there's a sort of psychological term that, you know, when you own things, they have more relevance than when you don't. And I think in this particular case, people have come to expect a higher standard. So clearly that is one issue. Um, and more broadly, it's a very export-dependent economy, China is. Mm-hmm. Um, and And the reality is, is that you know, the bulls have argued that they can just turn their production inwards. Well, it's not a, a flick switch. I mean, they don't suddenly say, oh, we're, we're selling goods to Walmart in the U.S. Okay, let's stop now. Walmart stop buying and, and we'll just sell those goods to China. It's, it's really much more complicated than that. And it sounds to me like China, which has the largest uh, urban proletariat in the world, is going to have a lot of layoffs and it's going to be very bad. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk more about the kind of tensions that this is going to create and whether the world outside the United States is going to be more heavily impacted than the United States. I'm Jeff Nyquist. We'll be back after these messages. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries I will stand with you, my friend For justice will amend America America You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist 
listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. We're back. With me is Michael Panzner, my special guest. He's author of Financial Armageddon. He's made some remarkable predictions. He kind of had a nose for this economic downturn that's been going on, uh, and uh, he sees it as a as a big thing. How did you explain it, Michael? It, it's it's uh, not just your usual um, business cycle. Yeah, it's not your sort of a uh, garden variety downturn. I think is uh, is is what many of the sort of optimists had hoped for. It's a structural downturn, um, which is 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 far more. Uh, you know, along the lines of what we saw back in the um, during the Great Depression, you know, where you had uh, essentially excesses that built up had built up over a tremendously long period of time that haven't never have gotten quite resolved, and and we've reached a, a reckoning point. Hmm. We had you on the show uh, three times before, and you've talked about a process going from three to five years. Are we a year into this process yet, or do you count it as we're just barely getting into it now? Well, I think we're sort of barely getting into it. You know, clearly we've uh, we've things have been going from bad to worse since last summer. Uh, so. You know, I think I probably allowed myself a little bit more leeway in terms of three to seven years. I certainly think we're we're well into the first year, um, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, potential counteracting forces. I don't discount what the government can do when it's under pressure. You know, there's some argument that suggests, and and you raise the issue of uh, you know uh, someone like Obama coming along that. Whatever he may do, even if he re- revives public spirits, could delay sort of the day of reckoning. But I think the forces in motion are um, will continue regardless of the change in the political structure. Hmm. Let's talk about the dollar devaluation. Of course, that is related to the rising price of oil. And we're also seeing the, these uh, markets in Europe and China and India being affected. I mean... It seems that the devaluation of the dollar is kind of a universal financial catastrophe for all. And uh, perhaps you have some insight into where this is leading. Are we headed for a dollar collapse? Is the dollar going to lose more value? Or is there something else that's going to happen here? Well, ultimately, I think that's the course. Although um, here's where I differ a little bit from the the outright dollar bears, at least in the short run, and the, the, the sort of gold bulls and the investing offshore bulls. There's a lot of people who think this is going to just be a sort of straightforward process and uh, easy money in, in a sense. It's not going to be easy money. I mean, I'll give you a good example. The U.K. economy is, is probably in about as bad a shape as the U.S. economy, and yet their currency has benefited, the U.K. pound, at the expense of the dollar. Well, the reality is, is that they're vulnerability for their currency is maybe not quite as bad as the dollar given given the sort of longer term structural issues but certainly there's no reason for the their currency to be gaining ground on the dollar as it has done um with with this sort of broader weakness so you just may see the pressures alleviate themselves in other ways in the short run you may find even dollar stability in some cases against certain countries um the truth is that many countries have paper currencies that are not really backed by sound fundamentals or um, any kind of other 
measure that would tend to support them uh, in the longer term. So even though the dollar has the, mo- the most going against it, um, there's, the other options aren't so great either. Hmm. Is there going to be a move, you think, to bolster paper currencies? We now have currencies that are mainly paper uh, throughout the world. Are they all giving way? Is this part of the structural change? What do you think is un- underneath it? Well, I, I believe so, and I think it fits with my broader theme of um, where the world is headed, where the world's going to be fracturing into smaller and smaller pieces. Is it going to become a, a sort of darker and less cohesive um, place? And I think the impact of that will be felt in terms of a, the, the monetary system. That's You know, you've essentially got a, a global monetary system anchored originally to the dollar and, and still to a certain extent. Um, and once that sort of falls apart, it, it changes a lot of relationships and a lot of logic for uh, the established currency system. Um, and we may very well find that um, in countries around the world that there's a, there's a movement towards alternatives, whatever they might be, digital gold, who knows? I, I don't really have an answer. Maybe people will be bartering with stones. Um, mm-hmm. I know that sounds kind of extreme, but... I, I think are, we're looking at structural problems that will reverberate pretty much around the globe. Yeah, and and of course, uh, if your European Union goes away, you you can get rearmament of con- countries like well, Germany and Japan, for example. Japan would be feeling less secure versus China. Germany might decide to enter into a special partnership with Russia. You could have all kinds of new alliances, all kinds of new power centers forming out there. And, of course, it seems to me that the United States, under these pressures, is going to begin to withdraw from the rest of the world. Its armed forces, it's not going to be able to support as big of um, a military budget. So there's going to be a retreat from the Middle East, perhaps, first, or from Europe, from the Far East. Uh, do you Do you see something similar? A hundred percent. I think we'll be moving towards a much more isolationist, uh, partly out of um, necessity, as you noted, the economic necessity. Um, but I think the, the flip side of that arrangement is it suddenly opens up the game, opens up a can of worms and geopolitically. All of a sudden, the, the U.S. has been the sort of, uh, you know, global policeman. It's maintained order with its, you know, fairly um, dramatic arsenal. Um, and now they're withdrawing. It's, it, I think you're going to see a, a massive power scramble trying to fill the vacuum. So I think you could see all sorts of new allegiances and alliances. You could see a, a world that um, uh, is a world essentially at war. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is a very realistic prospect going forward. The United States has been the peacekeeper, and there's been an extraordinary period of peace. That is, we haven't had a here. We had two world wars. Uh, about 20 years apart uh, with the 20-year peace in between. And then we went for this period. Now it's been more than 60 years. It's been six, it'll be 63 years come this um, September uh, that we've been at peace. Um, in, in terms of world war, there's been lots of small wars. Um, and, of course, if you create new power centers, if you create new empires or confederations, uh, they're not going to behave the way they behaved when the United States was the big boy on the block, are they? I don't believe so. In fact, I believe, and, and I think you've, you've noticed this, uh, noted this in, in many of your writings, which I uh, tend to, to feel are spot on the mark, that there are people who have a different mindset 
uh, a different cultural outlook. They have a different history in terms of their uh, resentments and, and feelings of, uh, of anger towards the U.S. and, and, and other uh, potential adversaries. Um, it's, it's, there's going to be an element of, uh, of, um, of retribution, uh, an element of um, people saying, you know, it's my turn now and uh, I make the rules. So what that suggests to me, if you want to use a sort of a familiar analogy, is a kind of a gang warfare situation when the, um, you know, when the, poli- when the police action dries up in a community, for example, uh, and there's, there's been a great deal of gang, gang action before then, uh, the gangbangers go out and start, you know, beating each other up. And I think you're going to see something along those lines. Yeah. And then the two major parties in the United States, you could compare them to gangs, but they're not armed yet, at least. <laughs> the Democrats and the Republicans, although it's gotten pretty vicious. There's no doubt it's gotten vicious in, in, in recent years. Um, do you think that we're going to see the emergence of new movements, or are we going to see the major political parties, one of them, kind of gain a, a monopoly of power and turn toward authoritarianism? Well, I, unfortunately, I think you see both forces, and I'm not sure which wins out. I mean, I think the the U.S. in terms of its economic situation um, suggests to me that the the more likely prospect is that the, the federal government uh, essentially becomes un, unwieldy and unmanageable and unable to influence, um, at least to, to maintain its influence over the rest of the country. So I, I think you're more likely to see fractures and splintering then you will see consolidation. But, you know, I wouldn't necessarily rule out um, an iron hand leadership that comes in and, and tries to sort of overwhelm these forces with brutality and the, the kinds of approaches that, you know, have been seen in, in um, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not sure, but I think the precarious economic condition of the U.S. will make it very difficult for the country to maintain that sort of uh, uh, unified command and control type structure. Mm-hmm. And of course, we we did in the 1930s see this rise in racism, anti-Semitism, uh, xenophobia, nationalism, um, and of course, socialist thinking. Um, and it was uh, a very difficult period for those people who believed in freedom Um and in the United States, with our Constitution and everything, I think it's it. People have to realize how dangerous this can be. If if we leave the system of the Constitution in which we work things out peacefully, we enter into what is essentially a period of anarchy and violence. From which it's once you get into that, it's very difficult to get out. Well, it, it, it becomes self-reinforcing, which I think in a way is what you're saying. I mean, one person sees another taking advantage, um, then that person wants to, to take advantage. I mean, the whole reason why globalization to a certain extent and the, the multilateral system that the U.S. was originally responsible for setting up, at least you know for the most part, um, is people felt that there were rules, felt, felt that everyone was abiding by those rules. If you get to a, a situation, and I think economics will force the issue, by the way, as will some of these resource complaints like oil uh, constraints, excuse me, um, where people feel that they need to take an advantage to, to, to sort of survive, then it you know, essentially triggers this whole cascade of others doing the same. I mean, nobody wants to be left behind. Nobody wants to be the, the, the one holding the bag. Yeah, nobody wants to be left holding the bag. And uh, 
And I see we have an election campaign here as this uh, economic thing is going. We're going to have a new president um, if we're lucky enough to keep our republic through this. And it's going to be either McCain or Obama. Have you heard any economic sense being talked by either of these candidates? Um, I can't say that I know for certain every aspect of both their platforms, but my feeling is that the, the context on both sides is very narrow. It is not taking into account the, the, this whole broader theme of what I, of which I've talked about in my book and, and what we're talking about now. So in that context, in a way, it's irrelevant what they're thinking. Yeah. They're not being realistic. They're not, they're not seeing what's coming. It's, it's, it's going to catch them off guard. I believe so, and and as my, and frankly, I think um, you know it's always dangerous to make predictions, but I think there's a very good chance that Obama is the winner, and I think everything about him that appealed to a number of people—this uh, idea of change, this idea of youth, um, this idea of, uh, of a sort of a fresh outlook on things—may not necessarily do him much favor when conditions, you know, are are, are far dramatically different than what people uh, were expecting. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, one of my big concerns is if we get into a very severe financial problem, we can't import all the oil we want. We have chaos in the cities. We have disorder. We have uh, systems breaking down because we're so dependent on oil, and we just can't afford to run things the way we have. We have all these automobiles and freeways. If we don't have enough oil to keep the cars going, we're going to have to go to transit systems, and they might not come in line online, you know, quickly enough to to uh, you know correct the thing. How do people get to work when it costs them half a week's pay to go back and forth? Well, it, it, you're laying the groundwork for an incredible series of disruptions, which are economically debilitating. I mean, the reality is if it takes you longer to get to work or if people, uh, if companies are closing down because their supply lines no longer make sense, you know, these sort of, I think uh, William Kunstler has referred to sort of 3,000-mile uh, Caesar salads, um, you really can't have a uh, – that sort of structure where energy prices are not supportive. I mean, but the upshot is that it it tends to have a sort of um, ripple effect um, on growth. That weaker growth leads to uh, to companies shutting down, leads to people being laid off, leads to a lot more uh, essentially a, a vicious circle, a vicious downward spiral in a sense. So I think that the sort of prospects from from that point of view are pretty poor. Yeah, and of course, I, I haven't made an exact study, but my sense is that we are now dependent on such a complexity of systems in this country that it is, that has worked so wonderfully that if something comes along in a, in a dislocation and knocks the system out, you could have agricultural sectors failing. You could have food supply problems. And we're already seeing a food problem uh, globally. Well, uh, you know, I think a good microcosm example is what happened in the financial system. I mean, up until, say, um, let's say a year ago, I mean, you know, it's debatable where things really, really fell apart. But let's say about a year ago, um, you had this incredibly complex system that was growing in leaps and bounds that seemed to function incredibly smoothly. And then all of a sudden, um, a couple of sort of chinks, you know, a couple of uh, wrenches thrown into the to the works and 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 the system falls apart and so i think if you can 
extend that in a, in a broader sense to economies and and arguably even the global system, the the entire sort of global order. I mean, it's all tightly integrated and it's all very dependent on things functioning as as they should. And so, if some don't, um, we find uh, all the efficiency that people thought they have turns into a to, to a sort of a lead weight. Yeah, and we've we've all I mean we've got these suburbs people are living uh have been buying houses out from where they work because it's cheaper to buy real estate out from where they work and now you have with these gas prices suddenly it is turned around on them and you have uh, at the same time you have uh businesses that are predicated on the cheaper energy and of course large layoffs I as I said, in California, we've had a 1.5% increase over a year, and this is statistics from May that I'm, I'm looking at. Right. But we've seen, we're seeing big jumps, the biggest jumps in March, uh, in April and May, where we're getting t- a net loss of 10,000 jo- jobs a month, roughly, in that period. Um, do you think the whole country, that, that, that sort of as California goes, so goes the country? Certainly. And, you know, I also think that we're probably seeing it uh, already across the board, but certainly the government economic data doesn't really reflect that. And part of the reason is because uh, I think in some cases you were talking about a substantial um, uh, illegal immigrant population that is Uh probably out of work. Um, it doesn't capture it in the sense that people who have been unemployed for too long or essentially um, drop from the rolls, even uh, though they're hold, still looking- hold, hold that thought. we got to go to a break. I'm Jeff Nyquist. My guest, Michael Pansner, author of Financial Armageddon, and we'll be back. Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. We're back with my special guest, Michael Pansner. He's author of Financial Armageddon. He's been working on a new book that's coming out next year. Do you have a title for your new new book, Michael? Yes, it's called uh, When Giants Fall, an Economic Roadmap for the End of the American Era. Um, it's uh, from Wiley, and I'm looking forward to seeing it come out. No, it sounds good. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, do you have any... Uh, closing thoughts in the last few minutes here. Uh, anything we didn't cover that you f- you find of interest? Well, I, I think the thing that um, uh, it tri- strikes me is that uh, this country has been uh, for a very long time um, given the essence of being sort of unified, and, and I think you highlighted this point. But being unified, being the sort of st- center of stability in the world, and I think there's a there's a very strong chance that it could turn out to be the center of instability in the world. And I think that's something that many Americans are not really aware of and, and perhaps is something they should focus on. Well, that's a fascinating concept. I like how you put that. Yes, we are a center of stability. And if that stability goes, so goes the entire world. There's no doubt. No doubt about it. Um, uh, one last question I thought I'd ask you. What do you think right now at the moment with the the stock market? Is it is it going to correct? Do you think it's going to keep going lower? 
nothing moves in the straight line. Markets have existed for you know all for eternity, arguably. But um, and and clearly there'll come moments where where you get these sort of uh, bounces of hope. Um, we may very well be due for one, um, but ultimately I think the direction is down. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Michael Panzner, for being with us, our special guest, in with myself, Jeff Nyquist, thinking outside the box. And um, I wish you good luck, and I hope you'll be on the show again. All right. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Well, I want to thank you for joining me on this edition of Outside the Box. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and uh, I wanted to say something about our very special music. America, America is our theme and bumper music for the show. The words and music are by my friend, David A. Lewis. And it is very special music to me. And the, and the writer, David A. Lewis, is very special to me because he used to be one of my students when I taught at the University of California at Irvine. And uh, David was a political science student. He was uh, headed for being a, a lawyer. And I thought that uh, Dave was a, a very talented, creative musician. Uh, I believed he had this talent for composing, and uh, I'm one who encouraged him to write music. He has become a composer. He also teaches music. He's written many things, even including a child's musical. So we're very proud and outside the box to present this music as our bumper music, and it's it's appropriately patriotic. I write a regular column for FinancialSense.com, and you can link to that on my website. It's JRNyquist.com, and there's a lot of information on my site. In fact, it's uh, it's been building for uh, several years, and there's there's hundreds and hundreds of articles by people from all over the world. So I definitely want people to visit my website, JRNyquist.com. To the ones that wear the uniforms. The ones that lost their lives To a nation that's been torn God hears your painful cries I will stand with you, my friend For justice will amend America Thank you for being with us on the program tonight, and um, I hope that you will join me next week at this time. Until then, take care and be well. America.